Welcome to today's episode of the Gone Fission Nuclear Report. This podcast is your one-stop source for all the latest news in the Department of Energy's Environmental Management Program across the nation. Now with today's report, here is your host, Michael Butler. Thank you, Jennifer, and hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Gone Fishing Nuclear Report. Today is Monday, August 1st, 2022. We're covering all the news from the Department of Energy's Environmental Management Program across the country. In today's Spotlight interview, we'll visit the Department of Energy's Idaho National Laboratory for the fourth and final installment of our series on wildlife on EM sites. We'll talk to Sue Vallord, Senior Wildlife Biologist and Wildlife Task Lead at Idaho. Um, we have um, a riverine system that's called the Big Lost River. It moves up through the site and then it enters an area called the sinks. When that river flows, um, we do get fish. Uh, we'll have bald eagles come in and, and hunt the river. Uh, another really unique species on the site is the spadefoot toad. When that river flows and it goes up into what we call the sinks area, those frogs will come out mass to um, reproduce, and then they burrow back down into the ground um, when they're done. And, and they can stay in the ground for up to 10 plus years uh, waiting for the next moisture event. So like I said, we, we don't get a lot of moisture out here. So we have unique animals like that. Um, he, and that is the only amphibian that we have on the INL site. We'll have more from Sue later in the podcast. And a reminder, you can still hear the first three episodes of the series at our website, gonefishingpodcast.com. In those episodes, we visited the Savannah River site in South Carolina the Hanford site in Washington State, and the Fernal Preserve in Ohio. We are pleased to report that the Gone Fish and Nuclear Report is now ranked in Apple's top 200 podcasts in the business news category. This category includes approximately 2,000 podcasts. The leading podcasts in this category include The Wall Street Journal Money Report, CNBC Squawk on the Street, Bloomberg Law and Yahoo Financial Daily. Thanks to you, our listeners, for making us one of the most popular podcasts in Apple's business news category. We'll continue to bring you the news and features on important topics from the Department of Energy's Environmental Management Program. Now here with today's top story is Michael Butler. Masks are back at EM sites as COVID rates continue to rise. DOE is requiring that masks be worn indoors when local community rates are high as measured by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Most cleanup sites fell into this category as of late last week. These included large DOE sites like Hanford, Savannah River, and Oak Ridge. All these sites have adjusted their protocols from time to time to meet conditions on the ground since the pandemic exploded in early 2020. As of now, masks are required everywhere except when you're in your office, by yourself, with the door closed. The Government Accountability Office has recommended that Congress give clearer legal authority to DOE regarding its ability to sell depleted uranium. 
They say this could potentially save the department billions of dollars. DOE's Office of Environmental Management is responsible for cleaning up the nuclear waste left behind at two former federal uranium enrichment sites, the Portsmouth site in Ohio and the Paducah site in Kentucky. These sites now convert depleted UF-6, a dangerous byproduct of the uranium enrichment process, into a more stable chemical form that can be disposed of or reused. DOE estimates it could cost at least $7.2 billion to convert and dispose of the depleted uranium at its sites. But if DOE can transfer portions of its depleted uranium inventory, such as by selling some to a private company, it could save billions. However, it's unclear if DOE has authority to sell depleted uranium. DOE recommended that Congress consider clarifying DOE's authority to sell the depleted uranium. Hanford's coal test facility is celebrating 20 years of operation, successfully testing equipment and technologies for use in both single-shell and double-shell tanks. In operation since 2002, the facility features a full-scale mock-up of a single-shell waste storage tank. The facility is important because it allows workers to safely test prototype systems and train in a non-radioactive environment. Numerous technologies have been tested, modified, and perfected over the years, including a vacuum retrieval system, robotic arms, high-pressure water nozzles, tools for tank inspections and repair, and in-tank camera systems. EM's Moab Uranium Mill Tailings Remedial Action Project has been honored with an environmental award for the third consecutive year. It is one of seven DOE sites to receive the recognition this year. The project received the Electronic Product Environmental Assessment Tool Purchaser Award, known as EPEAT. The award is presented by the Global Electronic Council, a nonprofit group that advocates for purchasing practices that improve the environment. The award recognizes green purchases for electronic equipment, including computers, displays, imaging equipment, and mobile phones. Other DOE sites winning this year included Hanford, Oak Ridge, Portsmouth, Savannah River, West Valley, and Paducah. You're up to date on the latest DOE environmental management news. Now it's time for this week's Spotlight interview featuring a special guest. Here again is Michael Butler. Now it's time for this week's Spotlight interview. We're talking with Sue Vylord, Senior Wildlife Biologist and Wildlife Task Lead at Idaho National Laboratory. This interview is the last in a four-part series on wildlife at Department of Energy sites. What kind of species exist? How are they protected? And do they ever interfere with cleanup operations? You can review these episodes at our website, gonefishingpodcast.com. Now here's our interview with Sue Vallord. Uh Welcome to the podcast, Sue. Hi, Mike. Glad to be here. 
Well, we're very glad to have you today. Uh, we've been doing a series on uh, wildlife at various EM sites around the country, and uh, uh, this will be uh, part four, the last in the series. Uh, we've uh, previously we visited at Savannah River, uh, at the uh, Hanford site, uh, Fernald, Ohio, and now we're here with you at Idaho. So we're very glad to uh, be with you today. Uh, can you start by talking about uh, the kind of wildlife that uh, that's found on the uh, on the Idaho site? You bet. Um... First, it's important to know about the ecology that's on the site. Um, we are located in the sagebrush steppe ecosystem. And so most of our wildlife that are here are um, directly associated with that type of environment. It's hot, it's dry in the summer, um, and it gets very cold in the winter, very little precipitation. So, you know, the wildlife that we have on site is um, associated with that. Um, we also get uh, species that use the site for migration purposes. So they may not reside on the site year round, but do use the site as stopovers for migration. Um, and some some come in seasonally. You know, we have uh, animals that come on only during the winter time, and then animals that only come on during the summertime. So we have a variety, but um, they're all really closely tied to that sagebrush ecosystem. Okay. Um, what are Tell us about some of the more unusual kinds of wildlife. Do you have any species that you uh, would consider uh, unusual or the most common ones? So we've got a number of species that we call sagebrush obligates, and they need sagebrush to survive. Some of it eat it, some of it um, require it for breeding and breeding purposes. So, um, you know, those are very unique to um, our site. Uh, one of the cutest animals I think we have out there is the pygmy rabbit. It looks just like a little tiny stuffed rabbit. It's the smallest rabbit in the world. It's the only rabbit in North America that digs its own burrows, and it relies on sagebrush. It needs the sagebrush to um, eat. It eats a lot of the, a lot of its diet is sagebrush. So, um, like I say, that's that's really one of the most uh, for me probably the cutest. You can't ask me to choose a favorite or what's yeah. unique. I, I love it all out there, but uh, you know, the pygmy rabbit is is really kind of cool. Well, let's add, let's add to the list. Uh, I know when we talked to the folks at Savannah River, they had uh, they have alligators, uh, deer, uh, wild turkeys, and uh, out at Hanford, there's a lot of elk. And uh, what what other kinds of uh, what other kinds of wildlife do you see on the uh, Idaho site? Well, um, you know, we have species, all varieties. Um, Let's kind of start with our water source. You know, like I said, it's very dry out there. Um, we have um, a riverine system that's called the Big Lost River. It moves up through the site and then it enters an area called the sinks. When that river flows, um, we do get fish. Uh, we'll have bald eagles come in and, and hunt the river. Uh, another really unique species on the site is the spadefoot toad. When that river flows and it goes up into what we call the sinks area, those frogs will come out in mass to um, reproduce, and then they burrow back down into the ground um, when they're done. And, and they can stay in the ground for up to 10 plus years uh, waiting for the next moisture event. So like I said, we, we don't get a lot of moisture out here. So we have unique animals like that. Um, he, and that is the only amphibian that we have on the INL site. 
We have um, about 10 different reptiles, snakes and lizards, horned, to horned lizards, <laughs> um, things like that. We have only about 50 mammals. So we have, you know, ranging everything from, uh, you know, mice, kangaroo rats, you know, up to deer and elk and pronghorn. We see the occasional moose on the site, you know, moose are associated with water, but we do get them coming out of the mountains looking for a water source on the INL site. Uh, we've recorded mountain lions on the INL site, bobcats. So we have really a big variety of species, and we've actually documented over 200 bird species utilizing the INL site, um, like I said, for migratory or breeding purposes or even wintering purposes. So um, a lot of people drive through and think there's nothing out there, but um, we are very rich in resources when it comes to wildlife out on the INL site. Well, it sure sounds like it. Um, what, uh, tell us about the, the program uh, that you have to protect wildlife. Uh, you have, uh, you know, cleanup operations and nuclear operations uh, going on at the site with the lab. And uh, uh, I'm sure there's a program there to, make sure that the wildlife are protected. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Uh, you bet. We, um, we take protection of the environment and the natural resources very seriously here. Uh, currently, and I say currently because I, I understand there's a couple of species that are going to be listed soon that do occur on the site. But at, at this date, we don't have any threatened and endangered species that actually reside on the INL site. But in preparation for listing, we have come up with conservation plans. So sage grouse is a prime example. They um, are kind of the icon of the West, and their populations have declined severely over the last 50, 60 years. Um, DOE took the initiative and realized that this could be a potential to harm our operations. So they developed a conservation plan, a candidate conservation plan, and uh, it's a, an agreement between DOE and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to conduct certain activities or prevent certain activities and protect certain areas in order to maintain sage-grouse populations on the INL site. Um, they've done a similar thing for bats. We have a bat protection plan. Um, you know, there's rumors that um, the little brown bat may be listed here soon, but when white nose syndrome hit the East so hard, uh, DOE took a look at that and said, well, we have bats on our site. If that comes out here, we want to make sure we take care of the site and the bats don't hinder our operations because they do visit facilities. Mm -hmm. So they developed a bat protection plan and have issued it to the facilities that um, guides the facilities in things that they should do to prevent any damage or any harm to any bats that occur on the INL site. Um, <clears throat> we also have... Um, migratory bird permits that allows us takes, but we have a very rigorous program um, that we put in front of our entire staff to protect birds, nesting birds, migratory birds, chicks. Um, and the staff are great. They um, take that to heart and, um, you know, do all, all that they can in terms of protecting the birds and making sure the birds either are not nesting in critical areas, or if they are nesting, they make modifications in order to um, protect migratory birds. So like I say, we take, we take wildlife very, very um, serious in protecting the environment and what we do there, um, very serious and, and try to look forward and ahead to things that might come down the line and be prepared for it. 
Well, you sort of touched on uh, something that uh, I wanted to ask you about in the next question, and that is uh, the the conflict between uh, that may occur between wildlife and the operations of the facility. Uh, uh, does the presence of wildlife ever interfere or threaten to interfere uh, with any of the uh, activities there at the site? The uh, either clean up or other nuclear activities? Well, when you when you work in a remote facility, uh, the INL site is uh, about 45, 50 miles away from uh, Idaho Falls. So, um, you know, it's kind of out in the middle of the desert. So um, anytime you have a site like that, you're going to have interactions. Um, but like I say, facility folks are great. I've heard them take extraordinary efforts to rescue animals and get them outside of their facility. We've really never, because like I said, people are pretty vigilant in maintain, maintenance and keeping animals out of critical areas. We've really never had any um, work stoppages or problems in terms of wildlife. Um, like I say, they're all aware. They know what's going on out there. We have fences around problem areas. So, you know, at this point, as far as I know, I've been here, you know, for almost 20 years. We've really had, never had any shutdowns due to wildlife. And I attribute that to our staff for, for um, being aware of what's going on and making sure things are kept out of the critical area areas that we have on site. Okay. Um, some DOE sites have uh, public tours of their wildlife areas. Uh, I know that's true at Fernald in Ohio that they actually arrange for the public or they can take a drive through the site on weekends to kind of see uh, what kind of wildlife is there. And others like Savannah River, they sponsor controlled hunts uh, for certain types of game like deer, or wild turkeys. Uh, at Idaho, do you have any of these kind of activities? Do you have either tours or uh, hunting, uh, hunting uh, possibilities there? Um, you know, we have a very um, rigorous uh education program. And part of that is, is we um, reach out to the tribes um, quite often and they come out and they visit um, some of our sensitive areas. Uh, we do uh, many tours with the tribes to get them out and visit the area. Uh, we have EBR1 where, the, where um, the general public can come out and visit and learn about the first, um, the lighting of the first city by nuclear, um, a nuclear reactor. Um, mm -hmm. But as for touring for wildlife, um, we're on 890 square miles. And no matter how much I pay these animals, they're never where I want them to be <laughs> to, to take people out to tour. Yeah. <laughs> um, we do have sage grouse legs that we offer tours for um, staff that, um, you know, but that's such a short duration that we usually don't open that up to the public. Um, and like I say, usually that's um, maintained to, to facility staff so we can get them out and, and get them more aware of their environment and more willing to um, protect what we've got out there as well. So we use a kind of an internal um, marketing to, to, to show people the resources that we have. But like I say, we do have, um, we do allow hunting along a small portion of our boundaries uh, for big game, uh, but that's with a Idaho fishing game permit. You have to go there and get a proper permit. Uh, but like I said, it's only restricted to certain areas that they can hunt. 
big game on the INL site. Okay. Is that a seasonal thing? Uh, it has to be a certain time of the year? Yeah, it's only during the hunting season in the fall. Okay. Um, back to the protection of the environment. Uh, overall, uh, how would you describe DOE's commitment? I, I know you've talked a lot about your staff there and the, uh, the way that they sort of go out of their way, the extra mile to protect the wildlife. But what about the Department of Energy and their commitment to protecting wildlife? Uh, and, and, and why is that important in the context of uh, environmental cleanup and nuclear operations? Well, you know, I, I really can't talk for DOE. Um, but like I said before, you know, they have had the foresight to implement conservation plans and to, to make sure that animals are taken care of on the INL site. Um, so, you know, they're, they're very conscious of what's going on in the environment. Um, you know, I've, I've often experienced the attitude that, you know, we're take, taking care of this for what it, what's existing and what's coming up in the future. You know, we're a cleanup operation and they want to make sure that they're turning this over and maintaining it so, you know, wildlife and other, um, the ecosystem can continue to maintain itself mm-hmm. uh, it, for, for future generations. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and I think they've shown that, like I said, through their efforts, through MBTA, uh, developing conservation plans, uh, monitoring the wildlife that's currently existing there and, and those type, type of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we've covered quite a bit of uh, territory here during the course of this uh, conversation, but uh, is there anything else that you would want our listeners to know about uh, that we haven't uh, discussed yet when it comes to wildlife at the Idaho site? I think this is just a very special ecosystem, and I feel very privileged to be able to work in this ecosystem with the species that we have and with the people that are here. Like I said, the staff out here at DOE, you know, take great interest in uh, the wildlife and making sure that the ecosystem is being taken care of. So, like I say, I just, I, I feel very fortunate. And this is a very unique opportunity to be able to work with the people that I work with and the attitudes that they have. So I don't have really anything more to say, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a diff- definitely an interesting place to work. Sue, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. You're welcome, Mike. Anything I can, any other information I can get you, feel free to give me a call. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Gone Fission Nuclear Report podcast. Join us next week for more news about DOE's environmental management program across the nation. To comment on this episode, hear past episodes, or suggest a future interview guest, visit us at gonefissionpodcast.com. You'll also find links to topics of interest covered in this podcast. Visit gonefissionpodcast.com.